0: But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh.
0: Wherever you are, however you're listening, hey, thanks for joining us for America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. All right, normally we're live right here on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, but now that it's summer, our team is traveling all over the world, making opera, making art, making trouble, not to worry. You're going to get your OBS fix this summer. Most of our shows will be pre-recorded, but still released at their usual time. That's Mondays at 9 p.m. Central on WNUR, and re-released on Tuesdays as podcasts on iTunes. So, over the next two months, you'll get all your favorite segments, as well as guest interviews, a couple of solo shows from yours truly, and of course, our team's hot takes on everything opera-related. Plus, you can still have your voice heard. Leave us a voicemail on 224-2189-BOX. That's 224 218 9269. Tweet us at Opera Box Score or write to us via Facebook or at com. All right, this week I go inside the huddle with mezzo soprano Davia Boulet. She's currently singing Carmen at the Bayview Music Festival in Michigan, but she's based in Berlin. Davia and I talk about the easy parts of singing Carmen. Hint it's not a lot. Plus, we compare and contrast Berlin's opera houses. Then, creative consultant Oliver Camacho checks in from the Berlin of the East Coast. That, of course, would be New London, Connecticut, where he spent the last few weeks at the Amherst Early Music Festival. Don't miss his audio postcard. That's in 30 minutes. And, but of course, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. Actually got a great two-minute drill for you this week. Got a great show for you this week. It's kind of funny. Summertime things get a little sleepy in opera land. Festivals happening. But yeah, nice, nice show. We'll talk a little bit of sports first. Roger Federer winning Wimbledon for the eighth time. It's gonna make Oliver really happy. Oh, those hairless legs of Roger Federer. You know, he's he's been funny because he has not been in the finals, certainly Wimbledon, for probably, what, three, four, five years now? That was a big deal for him to win Wimbledon. I, of course, was cheering for Andy Murray. You know, with my English heritage, it, it's nice when a Brit wins Wimbledon. It feels right, you know? And I do say Brit. Andy Murray, of course, is Scottish. I can't say Englishman. Although it's funny, uh there was an American player who made it to the quarterfinals I think it was no semifinals and in an interview with Andy Murray um who had just beaten this American the interviewer says yes and so you know you should be proud that you were going up against the first American to make it in a Wimbledon semifinal and Murray corrects the reporter and says the first male American obviously women Americans had made it too Wimbledon semifinals in the men's division. Just, it was just a funny little correction. Cubs, oh, go Cubs go. Still suffering, of course, giving the fans on the north side fits. Let me just say this again. It is so tough to repeat as world champions in any major league sport. Yes, I know Pittsburgh Penguins just did it in the NHL. Yes, I know Golden State just did it in the NBA. Those are anomalies, by the way. It is very, very difficult to do this. Cub fans should not be disappointed if they do not go to the World Series this year. They should be disappointed if they don't make the playoffs. That'd be disappointing. That'd be insulting. But I don't think that's going to happen. Even in the lousy NL Central, I don't think that uh, the Cubs are going to have too much problems making it to the playoffs. Hey, what's your favorite summer sport? Are you like me? Are you suffering right now because there is no football to be had? Let's talk some opera. Huddle up.
1: Let's go inside the huddle.
0: American mezzo-soprano Davia Boulet coming up on the show on Opera Box Score. She's attracting attention from U.S. and European audiences alike for her distinctive, rich, mezzo voice and her alluring stage presence. She's performed with opera companies and music festivals all over the United States, including Cincinnati Opera, Indianapolis Opera, Amarillo Opera, the Aspen Music Festival, the Bayview Music Festival, which is where I met her, and the Round Top Music Festival recently made her debut with Amarillo Opera a Silver Dollar in the Ballad of Baby Doe, That's a great show, by the way, if you haven't ever, ever seen Ballad of Baby Doe, This is what Dave and I talked about. Sit back, relax, enjoy. Hey, thanks again for tuning in tonight. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here. Thanks for hanging out with us. We've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, Two Minute Drill is coming up in about well oh, 9.40 or so. But first, inside the huddle with one of my colleagues, Davia Boulay. Thanks for being on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's put you into context a little bit. We're pre-recording the show. Here we are at the Bayview Music Festival. Obviously, our show is going out live on air right now. Davia, how did you, a mezzo-soprano, how did you make it to Bayview this summer?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's been kind of an interesting uh, path. Um, I was here actually four years ago. I did a fall staff here. Um, I sang Meg Page. Um, and I just had a wonderful summer. I, I felt like it was a good place to, um, to experiment, to try out things, um, very supportive uh, atmosphere. And now, four years later, I was looking to do my first Carmen. And I thought, you know what? this is a great place to do it. So that's why
0: I'm, I'm here. Exactly. Right. So doing the production of Carmen, I'm directing you, uh, tell me what is like the easiest thing about the role of Carmen? (laughs) I'm going to ask you what the hardest thing is too, but like, what was something when you were preparing the role that you were like, I got this?
2: (laughs) Um, I feel like Carmen, when you translate the French to English is very cut and dry. I mean, it, what she says what she means, which is a rare quality that I feel like most characters in opera don't do. Usually you're worried about your subtext. Uh, what do you really mean? With Carmen, it's very easy to know exactly what she means, exactly what she wants. So for me, the objectives were, were clear. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So what's the hardest thing?
2: Um, the hardest thing is not playing the sexy card, um, keeping it strong, keeping it confident, but not allowing it to be like, oh, I'm being sexy here. Like, Carmen is sexy because she's strong and confident, knows who she is, and she goes for what she wants, and other people perceive her as sexy. But I feel like playing the sexy card is a rookie mistake, and I wanted to avoid that.
0: Have you seen other productions in in person or, like, on DVD?
2: Yeah, of course. I watched as many productions as I could get my hands on as soon as I knew I was doing this. Any particular favorites or <laughs>
0: Rotten Tomatoes that you hated?
2: Um, You know... I feel like I, there were little pieces of a lot of different performers that I, I found inspiration from. I, I loved um, Elena Obratsova's lightheartedness and kind of sensitivity. I loved um, Maria Ewing's um, kind of je ne sais quoi attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, Agnes Balza's just <laughs> balls to the wall yeah. uh, feeling. Um, but then there were a few, I won't name names, but there were a few that did kind of play that sexy card. And I just didn't connect with those as well
0: yeah um it's a it's a brand new role for you right first time you've been doing this what are some other recent roles that you've done as a a mezzo that have been super thrilling
2: yeah um i really enjoyed i actually just did a production not long ago with amarillo opera Uh, we did the ballad of baby doe um, by douglas moore and um i got to play three characters Hmm. in that role in uh, that show um and i Found that to be they were small characters, but I found that to be really fun as a a singer actor to get to go. Okay, I've got three different people. I've got to bring three different um, personalities, stories to the stage, and um, that for me was even though it was small, uh, was so much fun to do.
0: Uh, So you've sung at Amarillo Opera. You've sung at Cincinnati Opera. Yes, because you went to the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. Right. Right, I went to CCM for my master's degree. Correct. Give us, in a nutshell, I mean, what what is iconic about that program for you? What is the hallmark of that program? What's, like, the big thing that you walked away from your time at CCM with?
2: Um, for me, actually, it was the, uh, the budding fusion between Cincinnati Opera and CCM. I mean, that experience of working at a professional company when you're still in school, I learned so much from... Um, from watching professionals and how they conduct themselves in rehearsals, um, how they manage their voices through the run. Um, just I learned so much just by watching. I was a chorister. I started out as a chorister at 22 at Cincinnati Opera, and um, I got to kind of observe that process. And eventually I got to do the young artist there as well. So I got to kind of build my reputation there.
0: So you've, you've done work at different opera houses in America, mm-hmm. but you don't live... In this country. (laughs) Not anymore, no. Okay, so you do live in Berlin. (laughs) Yes, I do. How did you end up in Berlin? What's the story?
2: So um, my husband got an offer actually four years ago when I was here at Bayview um, to uh, be a... um, what they call a Stupendiat, which is the German version of Young Artist at Deutsche Oper Berlin, which is one of the main houses in Germany. Um, and uh, it was a big opportunity for him. Um, of course, it was exciting. And who was I to say no? So we we didn't have kids or a house or anything tying us down here. So we just decided, okay, let's do it. And we had less than two months to pack up our things and our lives and move to Berlin. We didn't speak any German we we really just dropped right into it. Where were you living at the time? Um, I was living in Houston. That's okay. my home base at the time. Okay. and you were married. Yes. Okay. Right. Right.
0: And so you drop everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, you're like fresh <laughs> off the boat. Yes. In Berlin. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, what was like the first week like? <laughs> and this is a couple of years ago now. Perhaps. It was
2: yeah. It it was so overwhelming to me because I. I felt like I was so ill-equipped at first to deal with just day-to-day life. I mean, I didn't have a job waiting for me like my husband did when I moved over. I was starting from square one. I didn't have friends or um, a community of, of musical colleagues I could work with. I didn't know anybody. So yeah, those actually the first three months I would to be honest, were really difficult for me. Um, Just doing basic everyday things like going to the grocery store was such a stressful experience. I mean, there's no checkout person bagging your groceries, so you've got to move through that line, get your groceries out, and get out the door. Otherwise, people get angry with you. And I didn't know the names of the products. It was just, it was so much. And so it was a lot of just, uh, the first year for me was just adjusting to the culture and um, learning the language.
0: Yeah, having lived there as well and and had a bit of that culture shock too. Like, the simple becomes very difficult, and the difficult becomes very simple. And what I mean by that is, like, going to the grocery store is impossible because you don't know what to do. And the really complex stuff, like, you've got to find someone to help you, and they speak the language. They can make it very easy. They know how to go through all the right channels or whatever because it's just just beyond you. Right. So there you were, living in Berlin. It's been four years now. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me about some of the art that you've seen there. And it doesn't have to be opera. You know, obviously you have seen opera, but let's save that for a second. Have you seen theater? Have you seen dance? Have you seen classical music, pop music, visual art? How have you intersected with other artists in Berlin and what has been interesting to you about that city?
2: yeah for me, the number one thing that I first picked up when I moved to Berlin was the the graffiti art culture there. It is strong and thriving, and i mean you'll you'll be on the the Uban, which is the underground, which also kind of comes out of the ground. Sometimes you see the city also. And there's just um, beautiful murals, uh, provocative mur- murals, disturbing murals on the sides of buildings as you as you pass by. And everything is, is a statement from an artist who wants to shock, uh, provoke, um, I- inspire in some way. And I find that so wonderful. And um, I think there's a really great... Uh, artistic culture in mm-hmm. Berlin right now, and people say that it's kind of like it's the New York of the of the nineteen
0: seventies. You know, like yeah. it's kind
2: of like going back in time a little yeah. bit there. Yeah. You know, yeah,
0: that is so true. I noticed the same thing, and I didn't live in Berlin, but I would go there probably every other month. I yeah, say, and I was there last March. Uh, for our listeners, that was the three part series that I did solo shows when I was in Berlin, March twenty sixteen. The graffiti is really prevalent. And the obsessive compulsive side of me was like, well, someone's got to clean that up. (laughs) The artist side of me was like, let that live and let that be there and let it be part of the culture. And I don't, I don't think Berliners have a problem with it.
2: No, absolutely not. It's, it's there. It's theirs. You know, it's uniquely theirs.
0: Absolutely. From, from the West Side Gallery to the the two sides of the Berlin Wall, you know, the, yeah. the the west side that was all graffitied up and the east side, which was totally clean. Yeah. Right. When they knocked down the wall. Right. They, they saw this. Um, so what about the opera?
2: Yeah. Um, well, Berlin is great because there's, there's three main companies, but there's actually four. If you include a uh, Oper, which is more of an experimental company does kind of Um, theatrical kind of edgy works Um, so I'm fortunate I know people at pretty much every house in the city so I'm often just going to different shows and productions and um, yeah opera in general from my experience in Berlin, I would say is usually more experimental, even at the larger houses. Um, It's minimalist a lot of times, not a lot of um, set going on, maybe not fancy costumes. Um, It's about kind of challenging the art form, going in strange directions sometimes, just really pushing the boundaries of what we think is possible. Um, and, And it's cool to see that and it's refreshing.
0: George Cedarquist on Opera Box Score WNUR 89.3 FM. Talking here with Davia Boulet, Mezzo Soprano. We're talking about her time in Berlin. Let's speak a little bit more about these four different opera houses. Yeah. Um, and we'll start with Neukunn. Yeah. Which you just mentioned. And I yeah. have seen some productions there. I mean, what's really strong there is their dramaturgy, right? So That organization will take pieces apart. I saw a a fragment of a ring cycle there, which bore virtually no relation to Wagner's ring at all. (laughs) I mean, everything was out of sequence, turned on its head, re-scored. Right. But it was totally enthralling and engaging. Yeah. The company is in the neighborhood, Neukund, right? Right. Which is where it gets the name from. So if we looked at those other three houses, the, the Deutsche Oper, the Komische Oper right. and the Staatsoper, Yeah, how could we kind of be very general but sort of separate them into three different columns like what sets each of those apart from the other three in your opinion
2: yeah um, I would say, um, obviously, I'm most familiar with Deutsche Oper because my husband works there. Um, so I'd say like Deutsche Oper is usually um, works on a large scale. So if someone's going to put a, a lot of money into a production, it's probably going to be Deutsche Oper. Um, they they do a lot of minimalistic work though. So it's it's on a large scale on a large stage, but it's often still minimalistic. But they also have some um, standard repertory that. Gets done all the time. Their bohem is classic, beautiful, traditional Tosca as well. Um, so I would say Deutsche Wolpers like just I would say minimal, minimalism on a large scale. That's how I would describe it in a nutshell.
0: Which um, is so well put. As a director, I'm going to agree with you there and say minimalism can be very expensive to do. Yeah. To do well, you know, when you look at like a beautiful floor and a single chair, and some amazing lighting, it can blow your mind how much time that takes, and how expensive that is, because everything has more value when there's very few things on stage, right. and nothing gets lost in the shuffle of like a Zeffirelli bohème, where there's so much going on, you can kind of cut corners here and there, right, I think that's very well put, all right, so then, Komische Oper,
2: Komische Oper, okay, I'm, I'm playing favorites here, but I really love what they do. They are my favorite company. Um, sorry to my husband. Um, yeah, they just—they really take chances. Um, they go for it. They push the envelope. Um, they're funny. They're cheeky. They're—they're they're innovative. Um, every production I've seen there, maybe I didn't even like it, but I just loved that they went there and took that chance. I saw. Uh, A production where there were um, rollerbladers, uh, rollerblading around the stage in this beautiful choreographed style, wearing uh, lederhosen with um, no backs.
0: Love it. Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And it was fabulous, you know. So I loved that. Komische um, Oper is really, I think, the the leader in the the new and the innovative. And, of course, Neuköna, in a
0: smaller scale is also that way. Komische um, Oper run by the Australian Barry Kosky, who's the intendant or the artistic director there. The mission of the Komische Oper has always been to do opera in the language of the people, right? It's the original comic opera, the opera comique that they would say in Paris, right? So that means they're doing it in German. The productions under Koski's baton, shall we say, have always been definitely pushing the envelope. Um, they were responsible for that amazing magic flute. Yes, you everyone's that everyone's
2: doing. I haven't been able to yeah. get
0: tickets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's, of course, in the former East Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walter Felsenstein was the original intendant there. This was back when when Berlin was divided. And then the company, after the wall kept that mission statement, but under Kosky has really become, as you said, I, I think, kind of the leader. Yeah. All right, so that leads, leads us with the Stadtsoper.
2: Yeah. What's Stats- your take? Staatsoper to me, is, they're more about, I think, star power. They bring in the big guns often and regularly, um, and they do a mix. I think they also do some uh, edgier, newer productions, and they also do some traditional, I think in some ways they have a lot of similarities to Deutsche Oper, um, right now they're not in their home They uh, their um, theater has been under construction for a long time so right now they're operating out of uh, Schiller Theater which has a different feel it's smaller um, so I'm looking forward to seeing their works in the new theater once it reopens which I hear is very soon
0: <laughs> yeah I know it was supposed to open and they opened it for like a day I think Yeah. on, on October 3rd <laughs> on like the day of unity the national holiday and then it closed again yeah uh, who it's knows it's amazing I've seen, I've seen a number of shows quote at the, Sh- the Schiller Theater but right. you know, not in, the, in the, the real big right the, the big house so uh, hey we're gonna take a short break stick around Davia Boulay on Opera Boxcore we got more talking to do about the German opera system we talk about the future in opera you don't wanna miss that
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
3: Wake up at five to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at five to give dad his medicine. At six, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at five to give dad his medicine. At six, I make his breakfast. At seven, I shower. Every day I wake up For up those
1: tonight. caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit AARP.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright. And Oliver the Man,
0: Camacho. Hey, welcome back to the show. George Cedarquist on Opera Box Score. WNUR 89.3 FM is the station that you're listening to. Got a great show for you tonight. I'm hanging out with Davia Boulet, the Mezzo Soprano. We've been talking about life in Opera Land, life in Berlin, and I want to talk about the future a little bit with her. Um Davia, what is next for you and your career, just on a total personal level?
2: Yeah, my plan is um, basically doing this production this summer at Bayview, doing Carmen, um, getting it on my resume, and then going back to Berlin and starting my audition tour process, um, singing for agents, singing for companies, whoever will hear me, and um, going from there that's the plan. How how hard is that? I don't have an agent. Yeah, it's it's difficult. Um it takes a lot of organization. You have to kind of uh map out uh what companies you think might you might want to sing for, what agents uh are good about taking uh newer talent on the scene. So, um it, it involves asking your colleagues, asking your network, hey, what do you think about this person? What do you think about this company? And kind of compiling a, a list together and then just contacting people. And just pounding the pavement. Yeah, basically. knocking on the doors the old fashioned way. And yeah.
0: yeah. And so you can um, audition for agents that are obviously based in Berlin mm-hmm. and that are also coming to Berlin from opera houses. Around Germany or even yeah. German-speaking Europe,
2: or even Austria. My my husband's agent is Austrian, so okay. it, it's and I have another friend whose agent is Scandinavian. So, yeah, we, it can be anywhere really in
0: Europe. We've talked about opera in Germany. Let's talk about the future of opera in America. So, where do you see opera in America now? Like, what's happening in this country now? And the follow-up question to that is is what do you think is coming next? Where is it? Where is it going to head? How would you assess opera in America in this moment?
2: Right. Um, I already see. I think the trajectory it's going to take because it's already starting to happen now. Um, I see a return to kind of more of a intimate theatrical style um, of opera. I think. I think grand opera will have a struggle to survive in in the developing climate um, i mean i love grand opera and i think there's a lot of people out there that love it too but i think for opera to continue to grow and develop we have to also embrace these more intimate um, theatrical styles of opera as well and also developing our american narrative um, drawing from our own stories our own um culture that we have that is so diverse and so interesting and we have so many stories that haven't been told yet um that are just starting to be told and i think that's our direction is kind of not necessarily trying to copy europe but but making our own um stamp on opera and continuing to to grow with that
0: it's a good point it seems to me that The next big thing in American opera is small. Yeah. Right. And that what audiences really want now are experiences. Yeah. There's this trend in marketing over the last few years and people buying Christmas presents is that (laughs) people don't want stuff anymore. They want experiences. Yeah. They want memories. And it feels like grand opera is stuff, stuff on stage. And what we really want to try and be doing is to be trying to be giving people experiences in mm-hmm. the opera house. You can have that on a large scale it's a, it takes a phenomenal amount of resources, and so it 's easier to do it on a much smaller scale, yeah, which I think is kind of what what you 're suggesting. Um, what sort of work have you seen in this country that that speaks to you that feels like it 's headed in the right direction?
2: I think that um, companies that are really catching my attention are companies, for example, um, Pop, which is in LA, um, Pacific Opera Project. Um, They're known for kind of doing some wacky takes on um, operas, like they did a a Star Trek version, I think, of um, Abduction from the Seraglio. And uh, they're doing it in interesting venues, they're taking chances, they're really mixing it up, and they're really reaching out to the younger generation um, in a way that I think is so necessary for the survival of this art form. So I love that they're doing that. They they change up the libretto um, so that the translation on the subtitle machine is a little bit more relatable to today's audiences. Um, I think that's also important uh, to keep it fresh keep it relevant
0: how do you think the role of the singer then is going to change as this opera form in in america as it becomes smaller as it becomes more immersive as it becomes more experiential does the job of the singer change does the preparation of the singer change or or doesn't it i mean you 're wearing the shoes what do you what do you think?
2: yeah, um, I would say the singing preparation probably remains the same. Um, that has to be there, that has to be solid, but I think singers today need to invest more time and more effort into developing their own um, acting process and being in touch with that and realizing that you know what. As well as I sing, it's not going to be enough for today's audiences to keep them hooked. You need to have something to say, have a clear message, and stay on message. Don't deviate from that. And what is that process for you? Um, It's about inspiration. It's about drawing from different... um, Knowing the history of the piece I'm doing, if there is a history. um, Learning the people that came before me, I think, is a a very important uh, part of that process. Um, and then going, you know, okay, where do I want to take this? Uh, what, some, what is something that I uniquely, as me, have to say for this character that isn't the same as the people that came before me? I think audiences today respond well to someone who um, shakes it up a little bit, uh, tries something different. Oh,
0: I've never seen that before. Oh, that's interesting. So then to tie this conversation back into what we started talking about, what has that process been for you For Carmen, how have you related your own experiences to that role? How have those things intersected?
2: Yeah, I felt it was very important for me to find uh, a piece of myself and Carmen somewhere to kind of ground that role into something that seemed real and tangible for me as a person. And I feel like that comes with living life experiences um, being in many different situations I feel like as I've grown up I've become more and more um, just happy and proud to just be myself to be comfortable in my own skin and Carmen is one of the People, I think, is the most comfortable in her own skin out of any character in all of opera. So I bring that that earthiness, that grounding that I feel myself as uh, an adult
0: to that role as much as I can. All right, last question. So you have a free day in Berlin. <laughs> yeah. With your husband. Yeah. Talk us through your day. What are you guys going to do? <laughs> what you well,
2: about? depends on the weather. So <laughs> if it's cold out, you know, we'll hit a, a cool... Um, there's a new brewery that just opened that we're really excited about called Stone Brewery. It was started by some California uh, beer brewers that have just moved to Germany. That place is so cool. You can spend a whole day there just hanging out with your friends, having a good time, listening to live music. Um, if the weather's nice, um, Berlin is all about the parks, the outdoor culture, um, um, just again, a lot of community, just going with your friends, just being in nature of some form and just spending time with each other, having conversations. Um, that's the really cool thing about Berlin is it's very, um, when the weather's great, the, the city just comes alive and you just want to be a part of it. Yeah. And then
0: you've got an evening. Don't yeah. Don't forget your evening. Oh right? yeah. So dinner somewhere and then go see a show. What's it going to be?
2: Oh man, I don't know. It's so it's hard to it's so hard to choose. Um, If I have to choose a show in town, um, yeah, I I like to see what's playing the Komische um, Oper, or I go to sometimes the Berliner Phil. Um, They do wonderful works there as well, and their um, their radio chorus is out of this world good. So I do enjoy that as well.
0: Okay, (laughs) Davia Boulay, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank Thank you. Hey, stick around, everybody. Oliver Camacho sends a postcard from his time in Amherst, Massachusetts. You guys will get a chance to hear what he's been doing there while I've been slaving away over a hot microphone back here in Chicago. It's Opera Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Huddle up.
1: Let's go inside the huddle.
0: Again, Davia Boulay on Opera Box Score. Hey, it's George Cedarquist here. Thanks for listening to the show tonight. What a fabulous singer she is. Definitely want to keep an eye on her in the future. Opera Box Score on WNUR, 89.3 FM. The Amherst Early Music Festival is the largest presenter of early music workshops in North America. They create learning opportunities for amateur and pre-professional students to study with leading musicians in the field of early music. This is Oliver Camacho's bag. He will have far more to say on the topic than I do, but if you know Oliver, if you've been listening to our shows, you know that this is something that he's truly passionate about. He knows more about early music than I would ever forget, probably. Let's uh, check in with Oliver and see what he had to say from his weeks at the Amherst Early Music Festival.
3: Hey, everybody. I hope you're having a great summer so far and are enjoying George Cedarquist's solo shows featuring reruns. I have just returned from a whirlwind week at the Amherst Early Music Festival, which presented Henry Purcell's King Arthur as part of its two-week concert series. The semi-opera was conducted by Adam Pearl, a specialist in Baroque opera, and a member of the Historical Performance Faculty of Peabody Conservatory. Singers who participate in the Amherst Early Music Festival Opera Project have a grueling schedule, which includes a daily vocal masterclass with their vocal coach, Grammy Award-winning tenor Aaron Sheehan, and a movement class, and a movement class with their stage director, countertenor Drew Minter. The cast, orchestra, and dancers have five days to get the opera on its feet before a single tech rehearsal and the performance on the following evening. This would be difficult enough without the added demands of a historically informed production. This would be difficult enough without the added demands of a historically informed production, being high Baroque ornamentation, physical gesture, which sort of resembles silent film acting, this would be difficult enough without the added demands of a historically informed production being high baroque ornamentation, physical gesture which sort of resembles silent film acting to support the text and choreography and choreography to fill out the and choreography to fill out all of the instrumental numbers and historical choreography to fill out all the instrumental numbers the performance was a rousing success The performance was a rousing success with the audience at its feet. The performance was a rousing success with the audience on its feet at the curtain call. The performance was a rousing success with the audience on its feet. The excellent young singers of the ensemble cast were each given a chance to shine. Standout performances came from the crystal-clear-toned soprano Agnes Coakley as Cupid, paired with the jubilant bass. Paired with the jubilant bass, Graham Beer doing his best White Walker impersonation as the Cold Genius. Here is a crude recording I made with my iPhone of Graham Beer singing the Cold Genius aria. Unfortunately, I don't have a crude excerpt of Agnes Coakley as Cupid, but I did manage to sneak a recording of her and countertenor Jonah Piali horsing around after rehearsal with Theobo player Nathaniel Cox. Here's an excerpt of Agnes Coakley and Jonah Piali singing the final duet from the Coronation of Poppea. The star of King Arthur was the production's dramaturg, Larry Rosenwald, who condensed Dryden's libretto and wrote poetic narrations to keep the audience up to date on the action taking place. Rosenwald's elocution of these verses cast a spell on the audience, priming them for the precise effect of the music to follow, be it joyful, sentimental, or tragic. In In his final narration, Rosenwald a professor of English at Wesley College and the director of the college's Peace and Justice Studies program, made this wish for the audience, or I should say, for humanity.
4: Three centuries and more divine our plane from us. The gulf is wide and deep. And there are truths we know that they did not. There's a glow of tolerance in the drama's end to which we modern should attend. King Arthur triumphs and forgives. Oswald, though beaten, breathes and lives. The king invites his foe to be a partner. In his majesty, knowing how many griefs are spared When all that's won is justly shared. How different the world we learn to live in, Where at every turn victors exult in crushing losers, Big shots are the only choosers. Dissenting causes are reviled, and vanity and greed run wild. Wherefore, though we must now forsake Arthur's green England, let us take some part of it along with him. As counterforce against the din surrounding us. May the gracious past be present. May its virtues last.
1: Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
3: Wake up at 5 to give Dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 to give Dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 to give Dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day I wake up at 5... For
1: those caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit AARP.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This just in the
0: two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in Opera News. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week in two minutes tops. Fort Worth Opera last month fired Darren K. Woods, the artistic director who put the company on the world map of the past 16 years. Now it's chosen to replace him with an advisory council chaired by Placido Domingo and, quote, extraordinary ensemble of creative minds and operatic entrepreneurs, end quote, who are supposed to keep the Fort Worth Opera up to speed with the world's best. The company has also named Thomas Hiltunen, a Finnish-born actor, teacher, and administrator as artistic director, and the company's promoted conductor Joe illick, its music director since 2002, to a new position. The Met has announced its 2017-2018 editions on the Lindemann program. They are Kiron Choi, a baritone from South Korea, Emily D'Angelo, mezzo-soprano from Canada, Gabriela Reis de Ramirez, a soprano from the U.S., Nate Raskin, a pianist and coach from the U.S., and Adrian Timpau, a baritone from Moldova. Heading overseas, Zurich Opera has named Mikhail Fichtenholz as its new head of opera. He's born and he's still based in Moscow. He's been the artistic director of the Handel Festival in Karlsruhe, Germany, since 2014. On the disabled list, the American soprano Nadine Sierra has withdrawn from Massenet's Manon at San Francisco Opera in November. She says the decision was, quote, an extremely difficult one to make, but after considerable deliberation, I realized the role was simply too heavy at this point in my vocal development, end quote. Ellie Dane, a fellow American, will take over, making her role debut. Also, Brandon Jovanovich has called in sick in Zurich. At 24 hours' notice, and only a day after singing Lehar's Das Land des Lächelns," The Land of Smile, Peter Bexala is replacing Jovanovich. That's in the title role of Wagner's Lohengrin. Director Andreas Homoki is going to play the part on stage while Bexala sings From the Wings. And finally, on this day, American composer and humorist Peter Schickley was born in 1935, as well as American soprano Don Upshaw. She turns 57. That's your two-minute drill.
1: Live from Chicago, it's Opera Box Score with George
0: Tobias
1: and Oliver.
0: Hey, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist hosting the show for you. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Pretty good two-minute drill. I've said this before. I'm kind of surprised how much there is going on in Opera Land, even on the summer months. You kind of think of summer as, as a quieter time or it's, it's less global. You know, it's more concentrated in the festivals. But there's a lot going on. Let's start with Fort Worth Opera. And, God, where to begin on this? You know, Darren K. Woods fired last month as the general director. Still not clear why that happened. Who was responsible for that? Obviously, the board had something to do with it. But There's a lot of unanswered questions there. Now the company's trying to move forward, and in my opinion, they are not showing what I would call joined-up thinking. It feels like the right hand is doing one thing, the left hand is doing something else. And let's start with the appointment of Placido Domingo in this role in the advisory council. Domingo, very nice man. I've met Domingo. Briefly. Very, very briefly. Nice guy, but a busy guy running L.A. Opera. Has his name attached to a young artist program at Washington National Opera. question is this. Where is this guy going to find the time, in addition to L.A., Washington, and singing, and conducting? Where is he going to find the time to serve in an effective way in an advisory council. That's a lot of Skype meetings. I'm just going to say that. And frankly, I'm going to say this. Give somebody else a chance. All right? Sometimes in this business, it feels like the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. There are a lot of phenomenal singers out there, phenomenal administrators out there, phenomenal people that love this art form. Trust me, I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about people that are light years ahead of me in their careers. This is not sour grapes. Trust me, I do not want a job like that at Fourth Word Opera, trying to put these pieces together. But there are people out there with just as much business acumen, connections, network skills, other than Domingo, that could really serve a company that is, in my opinion, floundering right now, that does not have an identity, that does not have a direction. Then you take that and you add to it these two new appointments, literally days later. We're talking 72 hours later, three days later. Thomas Hiltonen, Finnish-born actor, director, administrator. Earlier I said artistic director. What I meant was general director. And then add to that conductor Joe Illich, who had been the music director of Fort Worth since 2002, now in the position of artistic director. So, some questions here, definitely. I, I I don't see the connection between Hiltonen and Fort Worth Opera. Again, wrote these guys. Have I met them? No. Just looking at them on paper, looking at credentials. Hiltonen, an undergrad from the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London, Fulbright Scholar, MFA from Columbia, also connected with the berenboim Side Foundation. But what's the larger connection with Fort Worth Opera? I don't see it. That's different from Illig right? Fifteen years conducting at least one production a season at Fort Worth Opera. But again, why is the conductor becoming the artistic director? It's not that it's unheard of. Artistic directors have a lot to say about music, a lot to say in terms of programming just there's a lot of questions here and this company is not providing answers and it's not showing its work remember in grade school in math when your teacher was like yeah I show your work I want Fort Worth Auburn to show their work and to tell us why these hires are happening because right now this company does not have an identity and is not really being transparent nice list of uh Artists heading over to the Lindemann program. There's a couple folks at Lindemann right now who I know that I didn't know they were there. Ian Koziara, Ryab Chayab. A little shout out to both of them. Hope they're doing well here. Looks like a good lineup. Nice to have a couple of Americans in the crowd as well. Hey, let's head overseas. Mikhail Fichtenholz. Interesting guy. Russian. But... Kind of a German last name, right? Fichtenholz? Something wood. 39 years old, running the Zurich Opera. That's a big job. Again, you couldn't pay me to take that job. The Swiss are pretty weird. So are the Finns, quite frankly. I mean, they're not as weird as the Belgians, but they're they are pretty weird. Then again, look at the credentials. Look at the resume. Artistic director of the Handel Festival in Karlsruhe since 1914. Three years running a festival. Is that really grounds to be running one of Switzerland's biggest opera houses? I don't know. Watch this space. I hope he does great things. I really do. Anytime someone picks up a job like that, I wish them nothing but success. That is an interesting hire. Let's hope Zurich kind of shows the rationale for their hire. Because God knows, artistic directors in this biz, they come and they go. Over to the disabled list, Nadine Sierra out of Massenet's Menon at San Francisco Opera in November. Now, this is interesting. Normally on the disabled list, when people drop out, it's for health reasons. Occasionally, for personal reasons, family, something like that. And you know my opinion on the family withdrawals. You know in my book that that's legit. That's okay. whole segment on the last show was all about people withdrawing from gigs for family reasons. I admire that. I think it takes a lot of guts to say that. And I support that. This is interesting. Nadine Sierra says, quote, This is an extremely difficult decision to make. But after considerable deliberation, I realized the role was simply too heavy at this point in my vocal development. So, a couple things here. She could be putting herself in a position where she's going to do herself long-term damage. Singing. Obviously, that's not something that you want to have happen. But this is what's interesting. So, a singer is saying that this role... Is, is just too heavy for me. So when did you figure that out, Nadine Sierra? That's what I want to know. When you were offered the job um, verbally, when you signed the contract, obviously I don't know when that con- offer was made, when that contract was signed. When do you change your mind on something like that? When do you realize, you know what, I'm not really up to this? And what does that say for the next time someone comes to you with an offer? Again, maybe she's at a point in her career where where she's willing to turn stuff down. Maybe San Francisco Opera doesn't hold grudges. I hope nobody in this biz holds grudges. But it seems like that is a decision that you want to make very sparingly in your career. Very rarely in your career. Because what kind of a message does it send to... Opera companies. Of course, same time, Ellie Dane, who's taking over, that's great. All you want to do is to come in and save the day. Brandon Jovanovich calling in sick in Zurich. Wow, it's all about Zurich this week. What with the uh, Mikhail Fichtenholz appointment. So 24 hours before the show, which is Lohengrin, Peter Bexela replaces Jovanovich, and Bexela is coming from singing in Lehar's The Land of Smiles. Again, that's an operetta. It's not, it's not a huge sing. There's a lot of dialogue you gotta learn. I think we've all seen those shows when the opera singers have dialogue and don't know the dialogue. And again, he's not learning the staging. is gonna sing from the wings while the director, Andreas Homoki, plays the part on stage. Great director, by the way. Really good German director. I'm trying to think if I've seen one of his shows live. I know I've seen them on DVD. He's going to walk the part on stage. That I always find confusing. It's like, it, unless it's opening night, why is the director there? You know, normally directors were there through opening night, we leave, and we go on to the next thing. You got to let the show go. Sometimes it's easy. Some directors are better than that, than others about letting the show go. Maybe they brought him back. Why not have an assistant do the staging, though? Again, talking about Placido Domingo, give someone else a chance. Give one of those assistants a chance to save the day. You know, let go. That's my advice, as a director. Let someone else step up and do it. You really got to control everything. Yes, directors can be controlling. Give someone else a shot at it. Happy birthday, Peter Schickele. Born in 1935, so let's see here. That makes him 82. The creator of P.D.Q. Bach. (laughs) I'm surprised he's still alive. I think he's still alive. Must be still alive. I remember listening to those P.D.Q. Bach recordings on cassette tape when I was a kid. Very funny. Funnier than Victor Borgia, if you know who I'm talking about, Victor Borgia. Happy birthday, Dawn Upshaw, as well. Hey, that's the two-minute drill. Let's wrap this show up. Good call.
1: Bad call. On Opera Box Score.
0: Hey, thanks for joining us for the show this week. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here. Good call, bad call. I don't know if I have one this week. Life's pretty good. Maybe I was too negative in the two minute drill this week. I'm sure Oliver and Tobias will, will let me know. Hey, that's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V O X E R S H O R T S.com. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook and Twitter, search for opera, box, score. Hey there, can you do me a big favor and like our Facebook page? Then, go big or go home. Share and comment on our posts. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and help promote our show by leaving a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, especially if you've got some brand new sunglasses to wear. We're back on Monday, July 24th for more opera headlines. Interviews and insider opinions, Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR FM Evans in Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment.